We continue this morning in our walk through this great passage in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And as you're turning to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I would I would like to recommend to you a book which we are giving away on the back table as you go out. We've made available some copies and we can get more copies of this if need be. This is a uh, small book, as you see. There's nothing original here. This is all a collection of things put together by a pastor. And um, it is a a, a book called A A Puritan Bible Primer. And, uh, of course, I I got the English Standard Version uh, of this because uh, the English Standard Version, in case you didn't know, is is the, the English Standard and you, you all should have one. And, uh, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but it is the version that we use here in our services. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a great version. And there are many great versions. I say that jokingly, really. Um, but what this does is it goes through, uh, and, and gathers together some resources for you in your family worship time. Now, uh, just one caution. I use this. I'm using this now with my family. Um, you, you have a reading schedule there to go through the Bible with Robert Murray McShane. And, um, and I will give a word for you about Robert Murray McShane. Um, he's a tremendous man of God in his day. He died at 29. He pastored for about six years. He was not married. And he virtually categorized his entire uh, area of Scotland. And um, I challenge you to, to know anything you can know about him. But one thing that you may need to do is prepare your children through going much slower than Robert Murray McShane goes, okay? If they're not used to sitting under God's Word at the dinner table or at your devotional time, it will be too long. His passages are too long to begin with, okay? You don't take them all at once just because it says. So you may need to just read one chapter where he has three chapters in the Old Testament. And that's okay. But it's a good guide, and I think it is attainable over years of practice and, and, and implementing this into the life of your family. Your children will become more prepared to hear God's Word. And they'll be more, the ground will be more prepared for the work of the Holy Spirit in time to come. So I just recommend it to you. There's a lot of catchy little songs in the back about memorizing the books of the Bible and memorizing the Ten Commandments and, and, and just some tremendous tools. And it's not just for children. If you're single, Again, Robert Murray McShane did what he did as a single man, not married, not with children, and it was his uh, devotional time. And so uh, I recommend it to you, and it's free. You Please take it and use it. Um, okay, Ephesians, now you should be at Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. And we've taken a approach here, and I guess you're starting to catch on to it, I hope. Uh, we started out really preaching through Ephesians 2 verse 1. And then we expanded to 1 and 3, and then we expanded to 1 through uh, 5, and then we expanded to 1 through 7, and today we're expanding through 1 through 9. And I, and I mean that literally. We keep going back to verse 1 through 3, and I know, I know in our modern minds, uh, we've heard enough about the first three verses. We got it. We are dead. We are bad. And somebody told me, you said bad enough that it rang in my ears last week. And you said it loud enough I couldn't have missed it. Good. 
I hope it rang through your ears. And I hope it rang through your ears, not just while you were in here, but all week long. You thought in your mind, in my nature, I am despicable before loving and gracious and merciful and holy God. There is not one shred of good in my nature. I'm hopeless. But God, you can't have good news until you know the bad news. The problem many times in our culture and in our churches is we're running to get to the good news. And most of the time when we get there, we're not giving them good news. One, because they don't know they need it. And two, because the message we give is man-centered and not God-centered. And so I, I keep going back through it because it's so important. And listen, sadly, last night, I, I, I'm, I'm keep up with things through different media of outlets on, in the Christian world. Sadly, last night, my heart broke as uh, I received a Twitter from John Piper. Uh, I'm in here, not, not like I'm his friend. There's millions of us to get him, okay? And it said, all it said was, farewell. Rob Bell. And it was shocking. I thought, you know, Rob Bell, the pastor of church Mars Hill in East Lansing, Michigan, and and he has been questionable for a long time. And I've warned many, be careful. And he is progressively through NUMA, his series that many churches have just bought at hook, line, and sinker, he progressively moved away from traditional and orthodox belief and doctrine. And now he just released a new book yesterday that teaches full-blown universalism. Doctrine, I cannot say it strongly enough, is vitally important. It is not stuffy and dead. Nobody will enter the gates of heaven without right doctrine. And, and you say, well, I thought we're saved by grace through faith, which is the perfect place for me to say that, what I'm saying this morning, because we do enter by grace through faith. And when your doctrine is wrong, you're not entering by grace often. And you're not entering through faith alone. But yet you think you're entering on some merit, or you're entering on some frou-frou picture of God's love that doesn't really exist, which is what Bell is doing now. He's, he thinks people will enter. He calls it emptying hell because God is loving. If that's true, God isn't loving. God hates His Son. God killed His Son at no for no purpose. If God was going to empty hell, whether people believed in Christ or not, then why have the cross? Why not just empty hell? And so be careful. Be careful who you ingest and what, you, what they're teaching you. Be very wary of it, though not standoffish completely because we need teachers. But be careful. And so what I'm teaching in this passage and what I hope the Holy Spirit is bringing to light in your life is that these doctrines are foundational. They're not periphery. What we're talking about here is the central truths of our salvation. And the first of those central truths is... You are radically depraved. You are totally depraved. You are completely fallen. There is nothing good in you. And that's in verses 1 through 3. We are dead in our sin. You see it in, in verse 1. I said last week, and I say it again, Paul can't say it any more clearly. 
You are dead. And when he uses the word dead here, he's not talking about physical death. We physically die because of sin. But that's not what he has in mind here. What does he have in mind here? It's clear as you go through the passage that what he has in mind and what I'm trying to stress to you is that in our natural human nature, we can't even make a move towards God. We can't do anything that would appease in any way the living and holy God. We have no hope in our nature. We are dead. We are completely dead. As dead as a physical body is in a casket, so our bodies were dead under the weight of sin. Our spiritual bodies were that dead under the weight of sin. It would be just as logical for you to go to a corpse in a casket and pick its hands up and try to animate it. As it is for our modern preachers and churches to try to animate dead spiritual corpses through some program of steps whereby they might alleviate the consequences of natural sin, original sin. It's impossible. It's impossible. So we're not only dead in sin, Paul says, we're enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to it. Look what he says. You all once walked... Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in di- of the sons of disobedience, among whom we, the Jews, also all once lived according to the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So we are dead in sin and we are enslaved to sin. Right now I'm teaching through with my family the, the, the story of Exodus. God uh, doesn't drop redemptive uh, acts into the scene at Jesus out of nothing, out of thin air. But yet we have a history of redemption that has moved progressively through time to unveil the beauty of the good news. And one of the, one of the acts of God's redemption in the Old Testament that points our redemption out to us is the exodus. Listen, God led the people of, of Israel into through, through the work of Joseph into the land of Egypt. He spared them from famine and death. But he had already told Abraham they will serve as slaves in that land for over 400 years. And they did, didn't they? If you know the story of the Exodus, they became the slaves of Pharaoh. They lived in the land of Goshen. And right now we're in the middle of the plagues. We've been there for a week we just been talking about the plagues with my, with my children. And my children are becoming horrified by the effects of the plagues, but even more horrified by the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. They're horrified by the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. And now we have the pedestal to say, and I do, to say, but we all, like Pharaoh, had hardened hearts. Hearts of stone, unrelenting rebels, We were dead in our sin. And so Egypt becomes, in a sense, a picture for us of sin. And the people of God are enslaved to sin. And God sets out to redeem His people. He does that in the great work of the Exodus. And He brings them out completely. And that is a picture, a a shadow, so we can look back and see the work of Christ even in the Old Covenant. We can see it. And so we see the beauty of it. It unfolds for us as we look there. So we are enslaved. Just as the slaves of Israel were slaves to Pharaoh, we are slaves to sin. 
And not only the sin, but the course of this world. And not only the course of this world, but also the spirit of the power of the air, Satan himself. And we are carrying out our own passionate desires, which are all sinful. And can it get any more bleak? Can it get any more, any more graphic? We are completely powerless in our nature. And we are, by nature, deserving God's wrath. Deserving God's wrath. You say, oh, but my God, my God would not send somebody to hell. He just wouldn't torture somebody for all of eternity. My God's a loving God. Be careful that you don't create for yourself a God in your own image, but that you worship the God of the Bible as He reveals Himself in the Word. And it is clear as you study the Bible that our God is not without wrath against sin and those who commit sin, those who are sinners living in their own nature. So we get through the first three verses, and what do we get? The gospel in two words. What are they? The gospel in two words. What are the words? But God. That's the whole gospel. That's it. I am dead in my sins and trespasses. I'm a slave to it, and I'm under the power of this world, and the wrath of God is on me. But God, but God, who is rich in mercy, it says, he is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. One of the observations we made is that God is the one who is active in this passage. We, the sinners, are passive Everything we're doing is in participle form. It's, it's flowing out of our deadness. But God is alive and God is active and God is saying, I made you alive. Regeneration in a nutshell. I made you alive. I raised you up. I seated you in the heavenlies. God's the one doing all the work in this passage. And that in itself is the gospel. I don't, I don't sit at home and fret about whether I've done enough because Jesus did enough. Because Jesus did enough. I don't sit at home and wonder, am I being good enough today? Is God going to love me today? Is He not going to love me? Did I commit too many sins? Or have, have I done enough good works? Read my Bible enough? Prayed enough? I don't sit at home and fret in that way. And again, I look to the old covenant, even back there, and see God's great love and mercy. Where is it? It's at Mount Sinai. You say, whoa, no. That's the thunderous law. Yes. But when he gave the law to his people, which is the distillation of his character in words that we might understand or the people of Israel might understand, what did he say? The preamble is this. I led you out of the, out of the land of Egypt. I did it. He's saying, you're my people. What's he saying? We already have a relationship. The Ten Commandments are not the basis of the relationship of God's people to God. God's acts and works and deliverance are the basis for their relationship with the living God. The commandments are the outflow of grace. I want you to be near to me, like you with your children. What's the basis of the relationship your children have with you as their father or mother? Is it them obeying? No. It's the fact they're yours. That's the basis. They didn't do anything to deserve that relationship. They got it. It was given to them by grace. And out of grace flows the Ten Commandments. 
I want you to look like me. I want you to revere and respect and honor me. Don't try to live this life without me. If you do, I'll cut you off and you'll be cursed in the land to which I'm taking you. That's the, that's the preamble, the meat, and the finishing of the covenant in the old covenant. That's it. It's a beautiful thing. We often read it wrong, don't we? How many times have you read the Ten Commandments as a to-do list? As if, if you do those ten things, God will love you. How many times? Be honest. You missed the point. You missed the entire point. How many times have you read Jesus' distillation of the Ten Commandments in the, in the Gospel account of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, and you said, this is where, this is how I have to live for God to love me. You missed the point. Jesus isn't saying you have to live this way so I'll love you. Jesus is saying, I love you. You are a city set on a hill. You are my people, and so you will act this way. And in the kingdom, it will be perfect. So don't miss the point of the Bible. The point of the Bible has always been grace of God acting on dead people to make them alive, raise them up, and seat them in the heavenly places with Christ. That's always been the plan of God. It is a heresy when we say God acted one way in the old covenant and a new way in the new covenant. No, no, no. That is another gospel, not the true gospel. And so we have to be careful when we're reading God's word. It's why, and as an aside, I will suggest to you, always read the old, always read the Bible retrospectively. What do I mean by that? Read the New Testament to understand the Old Testament. Don't read the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. I know that sounds contrary, but if you read the Old Testament to understand the New Testament, interpret the New Testament, explain the New Testament, you will be a good Pharisee, but you will not be a Christian. The apostles always interpret Scripture in ways we don't and they don't expect in the audience of their day. The failure of the Jews in Jesus' day and many Christians in our day is we're trying to make Jesus fit our preconceived ideas as we understand the covenant of the old covenant. We need to understand how God explained the old covenant in the New Testament. And we always read back to it. Always read back to it. And when you do, the light comes on. The light comes on and this is the light. God loves His people with great love and rich mercy. He pours out on them in covenant love and He saves them by that, not by their works, so that none of them can boast. That's where we end. But if you just read the Old Testament, cut away from the New Testament, it is possible to get a legalistic view of the Bible. Be careful when you're reading. Be careful when you're reading. So we see the but God. And we said last week, we were dead in our trespasses and sin, but God made us alive with Christ. We are enslaved to the world and Satan, but God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. We are under the eternal wrath and curse of God, but God in the coming ages will show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And we ended on that point, that high point, that high point of God's goodness towards us in Christ. And I said, I asked the question, I hope you thought about it. Who else in the world would you want to be benevolent to you besides God? If you had to base your eternal existence on the benevolence of something... Would you want it to be Bill Gates, the richest man in the world? Or would you want it to be God, the God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth? 
Bill Gates' money will run out. God's riches and mercy will never run out. And will never run short. And so he says, God says, I'm going to spend the eons upon eons showing and displaying my great grace and my great love and my rich mercy through Christ into you as a trophy of who I am. You're a display of who I am in the eternal kingdom of God in the new heavens and new earth. That's who we will be as the bride of Christ. And oh, what deep riches there are. We have no clue. We read the outskirts of His ways and we're amazed by it. Just think when you climb the peaks of His mercy in, in, in the new earth and we're climbing them together and we break through what, to what we think is the peak, the pinnacle, the top. It can't get any better and only realize then He goes up in sheer magnitude above us. What are you going to do? Listen, verse 7 is saying, what are you going to do when you think God is this tributary we see of Him in the Bible? You do realize we don't know all there is to know about God. We just know what He has revealed to us and what He has revealed is true and it's enough to know Him. But it's not all of Him. What are you going to do? What am I going to do when we die? That's what verse 7 is saying. And we think we have seen every inch of God's personality and character in this life through His mediated to us through His Word and the acts of His Son. When we die, it's like crossing over a, a brook. And we wonder, where is that brook leading us? And death is stepping across the brook and looking up and seeing nothing but the vast oceans of God stretching before us. And we say, I've been fishing in a pond. I thought that was the largest body of water in existence. That's nothing but a little pond in a cow pasture. God is so much more immense than what I ever knew. And we spend, you say, I'll be bored in heaven. That's a boring place. Singing, babies floating around on clouds with diapers on. I mean, this is going to be boring. No. No, that's Roman Greek mythology. When we go into the new earth, by the way, it won't be in heaven. It'll be on the earth. Heaven comes to earth. That's what we'll be doing. We'll be working for eternity. We'll be loving for eternity. We'll be in the presence of God for eternity, learning about the vastness of God for all of eternity. So if you're bored, it says something about you. If you hear that and you say, well, that's boring, it says something about you. It says something about you, grave about you, and where you are with Christ even today. If you wouldn't want to know Christ fuller and face to face, that's what John says in First John, you don't know yet what you will be. You right now, you only see Him partly, and then you'll see Him face to face, and you will know as you are known. Whoa. Whoa, God's going to open up the vastness of His character to us, and He's going to say, try to know me. Work to know me. I want to know you. Now that, that I could dig for, I don't know, several eons, huh? That's it. That's it. And so that's where we are. We've, that's, and that's a recap. Some of you weren't here for all that, and so I just recapped it in just a minute there. A little longer than a minute. And now, um, sometimes I, I, I have the character of God a minute for me. Uh, is like a thousand years and a thousand and a thousand like a minute. So, uh, if we get to verse eight now, that's that's really the meat of the sermon today. Is verse eight? All oh, that's lead up. That's preparation. That's getting our whistles wet that we might know him. Look at verse eight. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. 
not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's where we're going to hang out. Listen, first of all, we are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. Look what he says. He says, for that connecting word again, we're focusing on these connecting words like but and for and through and by and all these small words in the text that we tend to just gloss over. Don't even know what they mean. For, he's, he's moving back up in the text. He's saying, look, verses 4 through 7 tell us you are saved by grace. That's what he's saying. He's connecting the ideas there. The immeasurable riches of God's grace will be poured out on you in Christ Jesus. For, by grace you have been saved. The by is so infinitely important. By, he's giving the objective foundation of our salvation is grace. The objective foundation of our salvation is the grace of God. Grace is a word that means gift. It's a rare use here. It's not the normal word. It's another word which talks about giving to a deity, bribing an individual, or the free gift of a deity to people. And that's the last one is where we are in this text. We're not bribing God. God's not bribing us. But He is giving to us freely. He is giving to us freely. So we know that's what Paul's saying, just by the context. He's not talking about somebody getting bribed here, which is how the Greeks used it often, this particular word. He's not talking about us giving tribute to God, though in other places that's how this word is used in the Old Testament. He's not talking about us giving to an idol. That wouldn't fit the context. What fits the context is the real God of heaven and earth is giving to us. For by grace, and what is He giving us? You have been saved. He's giving us salvation. The gift of God is salvation. Now, through becomes a key word now. For by grace you have been saved. It is the, through faith. For it is the gift of God. Now, here's where it gets amazing to me. For by grace, the gift of God. We've hammered on that a little. We've talked about that a lot. And, and I feel like we kind of have a grasp of that. The grace, the gift of God is salvation through Jesus Christ. This is His, His un, his, this is His unmerited favor poured towards us. This is a free gift. We didn't earn it. He gives it. Okay? But look what the next phrase says. We are saved by grace through faith. Look what it says in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. The objective cause and grounds of salvation is what? What? The grace of God. The ground of salvation. The, the, the move of salvation comes through the gift of God. Okay? But the subjective instrumental cause of salvation, that's, that's, that's kind of, uh, maybe technical for you, but just think. The cause, the ground, the soil, the plant, the root of our salvation is the gift of God. It's grace. And it comes through. It's the instrument that carries it to us. That lets us receive it is the faith. It's faith. Now, why is that so important? Because I know as a child, all the way through a lot of my years, I thought of faith as a work. Instinctively, that's a work. It's something I do. I thought God worked synergistically in salvation. What do I mean by that? He worked with me in salvation. God did His part and I did my part. And then I got saved. Now His part was bigger than my part. I gave Him that credit. He did more than I did. But I did something too, God. Look what I did. I believed. That's not biblical. 
That's not biblical. Faith is not able to do anything. It can only receive what has been done. Faith is like a bowl which receives water. It's like a conduit which carries electricity. Faith doesn't do, doesn't do an action. It receives the action that has been done. So what am I saying? It is the gift of God so that no man can boast. Your salvation is the gift of God beginning to end and you can't boast in it. So we spend way too much time, I'm afraid, running around, saying, begging, pleading, that people will do some things to believe in God. It confuses them. What we need to teach is the pure grace of God, the ground of salvation, the badness of man, the goodness of God. And at the end, we need to do what they did in Pentecost. When Peter got done preaching, they said, then what should we do? He basically tells them, you can't do anything. Have faith. Believe. That's That in different wording is what he says. Repentance is not a work. It's done in faith. It receives. It is, repentance and baptism are outworking of that receiving. And it's consistent throughout the Bible. It's consistent from the Old to the New Testament. Faith is a receiver. It is a conduit which brings to us the grace of God. Listen to what Spurgeon said. This is a long quote. The quotable Spurgeon. Uh, man, if we could think like this man. Listen to what he said. Faith in salvation, however, is not the meritorious cause. It is not the ground, is what he's saying. It's not the objective ground of salvation. Nor is it in any sense the salvation itself. We often talk about it that way, don't we? We talk about salvation as if it's faith. We talk about, what's saving you? Oh, I believe. No, that's not what's saving you. No, that's not what's saving you. Faith saves, listen, just as the mouth saves from hunger. If we be hungry, bread is the cure for our hunger. But still it would be right to say that eating removes hunger. Seeing that the bread itself could not benefit us unless the mouth should eat it, faith is the soul's mouth, whereby the hunger of the heart is removed. Christ also is the brazen serpent lifted up. All the healing virtue is in Him, yet no healing virtue comes out of the brazen serpent to any who will look on it, not, not look. So that the looking is rightly considered to be the act which saves. True, in the deepest sense, it is Christ uplifted who saves. To Him be all the glory. But without looking to Him, you cannot be saved. So that there is life in a look, as well as life in the Savior to whom you look. Nothing is yours until you appropriate it. If you be enriched, the thing appropriated enriches you. Yet it is not incorrect, but strictly right to say, it is the appropriation of the blessing which makes you rich. Faith is the hand of the soul stretched out. It lays hold to the salvation of Christ. And so by faith we are saved. The faith, thy faith, as Jesus says in Luke chapter 7, has saved you. So we don't need to get confused. What is he saying? The hand didn't do any work. The hand reached out and grasped the work of Christ. It received it. It's like a bowl. It's like a mouth. It's like a conduit. Faith receives the grace of God. The ground of our salvation is the grace of God. The instrument that brings that to us is faith. It's faith. 
And all of it is the gift of God. Look at the text. Look at the text. And we want to finish up by doing this and then going through some scripture together to make it clear, hopefully. And this is not your own doing. He stresses that. It is the gift of God. It is the question. It is, what, what is it? What is it? And there are a lot of suggestions here. Some people suggest it's the grace of God that's the gift. That would be redundant, wouldn't it? Grace means gift. If he's just saying it is a gift again, it's redundant. It doesn't make sense. So it's not just grace by itself. Some people say it's the whole act of salvation that is the gift. I agree with that. I agree with that. But again, I think the most correct way to see it is that faith is a gift of God. What keeps faith from being a work? It's not yours. It's not in your nature. It's not yours by inheritance from Adam. You don't have faith in God naturally. But He acts on you that you have faith. He enlivens you so that you might express faith. Faith is the gift of God along with grace in salvation, the whole act. Okay? It's interesting. There's one view which I, I, I wish I was ready to say this is where I was, but um, I'm not there yet, but I'm still open. There are hints here that the faith spoken of here is the faithful work of Jesus. Not our faith at all. But I, by grace you have been saved through the faithful work of Jesus Christ. He was faithful to His Father and to the will of His Father, and therefore you are saved. Because He was faithful, not because you were faithful. I'm not quite there, but I leave it on the table to say, man, that is something I want to think about some more. It's something I want to think about some more. But right now, I would say, it is the gift of God. Specifically speaks of faith. Generally speaks of the whole act of salvation. Everything belongs to God, and it was given to us. We didn't earn it. So, where would I get this? this that's the text, okay? Um, in 9, he, he simply says... This is not the result of work so that no one can boast. Boasting is something Paul often talks about in his letters because he's warning them not to be prideful in their salvation. Okay, but I, I want to take just a minute to go back to some other things Paul has written. Now that we've looked at this text deeply, I want to say, where else can we see? Is this the only place where he talks about it? And the answer is no. Take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 3. Let's do a little biblical theology. Just a little. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction between Jews and Greeks, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Look at that. To be what? To be, what does the text say? 
Say it. Received. Faith by faith. To be received by faith. Don't, don't miss it. Paul is saying, righteousness is through the work of Christ, not through your works. And it's that way for Jews and it's that way for Gentiles. Because God makes no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then he says, God put him forward, Jesus Christ, as the propitiation, the appeasing of his wrath. The covering of sin and the appeasing of his wrath to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness of God. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What's the gift? Faith. How do I know? Because faith isn't a work. It's not something I do. It's something God gives me which receives Christ. Grasps hold of Christ. Clings to Christ. Look at 4. Romans 4 verses 2 through 6. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham had faith. He believed. And that was counted to him as righteousness. Notice, faith which, which is counted as righteous is not the same as faith is righteous. That don't, don't ever miscounted it as righteous in the text. Faith is not righteous on its own. If you have faith in the goodness of man, you're going to bust hell wide open. If you have faith in Buddha or Allah... If you have faith in a Muslim system or a Jewish system, you're going to bust hell wide open. Faith doesn't do anything for you by itself. It's only that faith which is counted as righteous. What is counted as righteous? Because he believed in God. What did he believe from God? He believed in the promise that God had made that there would be a for, for, he would be the forebearer of one who would be a blessing to all the nations. And he believed it. Even in his old age, he believed it. And God counted that as righteousness. God accounted it. God justified him based on that. Now the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And Romans 6.23 is going to say the, say the wages of that work is death. It's, it's counted as, it's counted as a, not as a gift, but as his due. And the one who does not work, but believes in him who justified the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks, the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Chapter five, Romans five, verse two. Through Him, we, through Christ, we have obtained access by faith. And I don't miss it, and I know the is there, but it's really the same thing as through faith. Into this grace in which we stand. The connector between us and God is His grace objectively and subjectively the faith He has given us. Connects us to that grace which is in Christ and we are saved. Christ saves us. Not faith, Christ and He saves us because the ground of that salvation is grace. And the only connection between us and God can be faith, not a work. If you have a work, you can boast. And Paul says you can't boast in front of God. You can't boast in front of God. Galatians chapter 2. 
Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. Here Paul is even including in the things that can't save you, the actually the righteous works of the law. People doing the Mosaic Covenant as God had called them to do it. Those works can't save you, Paul says. Those works can't save you, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So anyone in the Old Covenant who is saved, the remnant of Jews who were saved, are not those who went and offered an atoning sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. All of them weren't saved. Some of them thought they were saving themselves because they did this work, and therefore they're in hell. Only ones that were saved in the acts of the old covenant were those who brought the lamb and said, I'm trusting God. I have faith in God. This lamb can't save me, but God can save me. And I'm doing this as a result of our relationship. If they came to the altar of God saying, this lamb I'm giving pays for my sins for another year. And they did that faithfully for 80 years and they died believing this lamb is salvation for me. They went to hell. That didn't save them. But when they brought it before the priest and said, this is my humbling off, humble offering, which is a symbol of my faith in the promise of God for His Lamb. Oh, that made all the difference. God counted it as righteousness. God counted it as righteousness. The Old Covenant saints are saved just as we are saved. By grace. Through faith. Based on the meritorious work of Christ. If Christ had not died... All of them would have died, and we also. The cross is the central theme. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves, so that no one can boast. It is not a work. It is not a work. And so we've seen this here. But I want to close. I want to close with the words of Jesus in John chapter 3. Spurgeon hinted to it, and, and before I read his quote, I had included this in my sermon, and then he quoted it, and I thought, man, I'm on good terms. Listen. Tune in. Tune in to it. Here it is. Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he said, we know you're a teacher. Come from God. Jesus totally ignored that. And got to where Nicodemus was going to eventually get in his rambling, which was, how can I enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus told him plainly, unless you are born again, born from above, in Ephesians 2 language, unless God makes you alive and he raises you up and he seats you with me in the heavenly places, you can't be saved. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And we know Nicodemus asked a good question. How can I re-enter my mother's womb? I'm an old man. Jesus says those things which are born of the flesh are of the flesh, and those which are born from above are of the Spirit. It's just, Nicodemus, did you miss the whole point of the old covenant? You can't save yourself. You can't do anything to save yourself. You can't make God love you. The wind blows wherever it wills. And you don't know where it comes from. And you don't know where it's going. You just feel it. That's real faith. You just feel it. It just comes from God, not from you. And you look and say, where did it come from? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. 
That's the response of a truly converted and saved and regenerated man. I came in this room not believing and I leave believing. And it wasn't something the preacher said. He was quite awful. It was that word, that word he spoke, that powerful word he spoke in the Spirit, planted it and boom, I came to life. Where did it come from? It came from God. Nicodemus, the only way you're going to get into heaven, the only way you're going to be with your Father, the only way you're going to be in the kingdom is if the Spirit works on you. You can't do any good works. This is to a righteous man, he says this. If you think you're a good person, go live with Nicodemus for a week. He was a good man. He was born in the right family. He had kept the law. He had made sacrifices. He was a Pharisee in the inner circle of the Pharisees. You're not going to outdo him. You have no hope if that's the merit. But that's not it. Jesus discounted all of that. As Paul said, he counted it as rubbish. It's no good. It doesn't save you. But to know Christ, the surpassing glory of Christ, that, that's where salvation is. Okay? So that's the answer in the first Eight verses. And then Nicodemus says, how can these things be? It caught him completely. You remember I said, read the Bible backwards. He had been reading his Bible forward. And he missed it. He totally missed the Old Testament. He didn't understand it in the least. And look what Jesus said. Are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. We bear witness of what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. I'm trying to tell you about the old covenant. I'm trying to explain to you the truth, but you don't receive it. He's saying you don't have faith. If I've told you, Earthly things and you don't believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is where I want you to focus at the end. Jesus reads his Bible backwards, not forwards. He goes back to the story of the children of Israel encamped in sin and God sending the fiery serpents in among them and killing thousands. He goes back to that story and explains it in light of himself. Look what he says. And, connecting word, and, it's not, this is a picture, it's, this is exactly what happened. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever has faith in Him, whoever believes in Him, may have eternal Life. Jesus went back to that old covenant picture and he said, listen, listen to me. When God saved your forefathers from the fiery serpents in the wilderness, he did it through me. I am the serpent lifted up. Why did Israel, why were they punished so severely? Because they took that serpent and thought it had some kind of magical power and put it in the Holy of Holies. And they worshiped it as an idol. And God said, you're, you're worshiping these earthly things that were meant to point you to my son, and so I will crush you. Listen to me. Jesus saved the people in the wilderness. Jesus did. The Son of God saved them. How were those people saved? Well, they didn't go get medicine. They weren't inoculated in any way. They did no works. What did they do? They were bitten by the snake, and all they did 
let's believe the promise of God. Listen to how crazy this is. Thousands and thousands of people are dying from the bites of snakes. And the magic medicine man is telling you, if you take this potion, you'll live. And what you have to do is say, I don't believe in these earthly things. I trust the promise of God. I'm going to look at the serpent. That's dumb, isn't it? In worldly accounting, that's stupid. That's suicide. What's the serpent going to do? It's inanimate. It's dead. What's it going to do? It wasn't the serpent that was saving them. When they looked up from their sin, sick, dead, fleshly being on the sun, lifted up as a serpent, they were saved immediately. They had the same saving faith as we have. No different. And Jesus tells us that's what we should see when we see that story. We shouldn't be thinking about wilderness treks and all this. We should be thinking, this is the covenant. This is the promise. This is God doing His work in His Son. Just as the servant was lifted up, so I must be lifted up, so that all who look at me will be saved. So what would I tell you? I would tell you, forget your works, forget your good deeds, forget everything you think you can do to appease God. God's love is merited only by the work of Christ. It's mediated through the person of Christ. By the grace of God, look then to Christ and grasp, receive, hold on to Christ and be saved. If you take one step towards what you think is salvation, you die. If you try to do one thing to buy God's love, your wage is death. But if you sit in your condition, made alive by the Spirit of God, and your eyes cast up to Jesus, and you say, Oh, that's Him. That's Him of who the prophets speak. I want Him. You're saved. And your friends are going to say it's foolish. It's dumb. It's stupid. Surely you're intelligent enough to know you can't be saved by simply believing in someone else's work. Yes, I do believe it. I get the picture of the survivors of that terrible incident, incident of the outbreak of God's wrath on His people. I get the picture of the first generation folks. They gawked at that serpent. They just stare at him all the time. They say, the only hope I got is that I believe God's promise. I believe God's promise. I love him. What I get in the second generation is people reading their Bibles wrongly. And they say, the serpent saved the people. Let's worship the serpent. And God says, that's wicked idolatry. Listen to me. It's wicked idolatry for you to think you can do anything to merit God's love. Your only hope is to fall at His feet and look at Christ and say, with your hands stretched forward, when we take the benediction, that's why your hands should be open as a symbol saying, I'm receiving God's grace. I, I'm not doing anything. That's what that means. I'm, I'm receiving it. Oh God, pour your grace on me. Your rich mercy on me through your Son, Jesus Christ, and save me. For by grace you have been saved. Because the Son of God was lifted up. And you have believed in Him. You've looked at Him. And you've not taken your eyes off of Him. He is your salvation. He is your salvation. Come by faith. By grace through faith, come to this One who saves utterly and completely. Let's pray.